So Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Three verses. It's all we're going to be covering this morning. But these three verses, these are part of the events from the first eight verses of chapter 6. The events that take place because of the one who is worthy, who has stepped forward and has taken this scroll and has begun opening those seals. In, the first, in those first eight verses, the four horsemen are seen going out, overcoming and to overcome. And they bring death and Hades, war and famine with them. And then in verse 9, we're told that when the fifth seal is opened, we see underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the witness which they had maintained. But who are these? And when are these? And why are these? Because there are those that hold that everything that happens in the book of Revelation after verse 1, chapter 4, after John is told to come up there in verse 1, everything after that happens after the church is raptured, after the church is taken to heaven on a seven-year honeymoon period when God will then begin pouring out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. But are they right? We want them to be. We want them to be right because no one likes pain and suffering. At the same time, though, we must always remember that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ, not of the end times as told to us by verse 1 of chapter 1. And the entire Bible, and in fact, all of redemptive history is all built not around a people or a nation, but it's all around God, the one that created all things, including those peoples and nations. And as I admonished you last week, we need to understand that the book of Revelation is all about Christ. And that it's circular in nation, in the events that are given within it. Even though there are things within it that speak specifically to specific people in a specific time. But in the end, it's going to end up right back at the beginning. And this is important for us to grasp. It's why this letter was written, this last revelation of Jesus Christ. You do know that there have been other revelations of Jesus Christ, right? In fact, you can rightly say that everything from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, everything within this book has always been a revelation of Jesus Christ. And when we look at the Bible this way, it's key in understanding the events that we're going to move, move through as we study this last revelation of Jesus Christ. And the events that we read about today, the ones that we're encountering today in these three verses, they're not in the future. The first four seals and the events that we are told to us there, they're not in the future. They are merely the history of what that first horseman has been doing ever since the very beginning when Adam sold his birthright, our birthright, for a piece of fruit. 
overcoming and overcome. And this is the point of that scroll. It is the title deed that was signed over to Satan by you and by me, by our federal head, Adam, when he esteemed equality with God a thing to be grasped and sinned. But who are these saints under this altar? And as I said, we don't like the thought that they may be us. We don't like to think that we may suffer or that we were going to die. And yet, statistically speaking, we all know that we're going to die. And we all know from personal experience that we're all going to suffer too. All men die, but not all men truly live. And what we must contemplate, what we must be convinced of is this. What in this life, what in your life is worth living for? What's worth suffering for? What's worth dying for? Well, I'm going to bring Scripture to bear as witness that these saints underneath this altar, that they are all the saints that have died, all from Adam to the last saint that will die prior to the second coming of Christ. And to make this case, to convince you that these are not mere end-time saints who have to be zealous, but are in fact just ordinary Christians throughout the church age. I'm going to ask and answer a second question. Why are these saints under that altar? Well, verse 9 gives us the answer. Again, when I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the witness which they had maintained. So there's two separate groups spoken of here. Those that had been slain because of the word of God and those that had died but had maintained a witness. A witness to something. And both of these groups, two groups, they are together. They are seen as one under that altar. And however they died, either being slain or what we would call natural causes, they were both united under that altar. But why are they there? Why are they under that altar? Because in our thinking, there has to be a really good reason to suffer in life. We need motivation in our life to suffer, to buffet our bodies. We naturally shrink back from pain, from suffering. That's why we pull our hands away from a fire. Why every modern convenience has always been accepted and implemented. And why dieting and exercise is just so hard. So why in the world would, the, would these souls under that altar willingly put themselves in harm's way or maintain a or witness if it was going to cost them their lives? To answer this question, we have to move back one chapter in the book of Revelation, back to chapter 5, when we are told that the Ancient of Days is seated firmly on his throne with the scroll that is sealed with seven seals in his right hand. And then a strong angel proclaims to all creation, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Chapter 5, verse 2. 
And in all of creation, there was a resounding silence. None are worthy. All the humans who have ever lived, none are worthy. All of the angelic, angelic beings, those both fallen and perfect, none of them are worthy. Even that strong angel that had made that proclamation, he wasn't worthy to open that scroll. And we need to really think through what it is that makes the person that would be worthy to take the scroll worthy. Especially in light of these three verses that we're covering today. Because that scroll is important. How important? Listen to the reaction of John, who's standing in that heavenly realm at that moment. The strong angel makes that proclamation. And then no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And this is the reaction of John. Verse 4. Then I was crying greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And you may be thinking, well, maybe John was just one of those emo guys that just cries at movies and stuff like that. I mean, after all, he was the disciple that liked to go around telling everybody, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. So maybe he was just one of those evil But I'm kind of thinking, we have to remember where John was at at that moment. He was on the island of Patmos, exiled because of his faithful witness. I don't think that John was a crier. Not like that anyway. John understood the significance of that scroll. And I want you to actually think this through. So he begins this letter by telling us that this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And we all nod our heads and go, oh, okay, yeah. And then even when we're told in verse 10 of chapter 1, I was in the Spirit on the Lord, and I heard behind me a, a loud voice like a trumpet. I'm like, well, mildly intrigued there. And then when we're told of who that one is that he hears behind him, verses 12 through 18 of chapter 1, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. And his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, when it had been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. And having in his right hand seven stars, and a sharp two-edged sword which comes out of his mouth. And his face was like the sun shining in his power. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not fear. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. And you're like, yep, okay, that's Jesus. Got it. And? Well, then he's commanded to write the letters to the seven churches, which he does, which then brings us to what we know as chapter 4, where once again we're told that he hears that voice that he describes as being like a trumpet. And that voice commands that he comes up through that open door, the one being opened in heaven into that realm. And then we are told immediately, I was in the Spirit. 
and a, and a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. That's Revelation 4.2. Turn back those two, those two pages to Revelation chapter 4, verse 2. I want you to look at this to understand the importance of what I'm getting at here. Revelation 4.2. Look at that verse. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, the throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. Did you notice that that S is capitalized in spirit? And then that O is capitalized in one, the one that's sitting on the throne. And we already know who's speaking to John. The first and the last, the living one that was dead and alive forevermore. John is standing in the very presence of God. The fullness of his deity is there at that moment. Father, Son, and Spirit. He's ushered into the throne room of grace. And then he begins to describe to us the Ancient of Days. And then the throne. And then the expanse around the throne. And the beings that are around that throne as well. The four angelic beings that day and night don't cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. Verse 8. And that's just the first part of a two-part chorus of heaven. Because right on the hills of them saying that, then the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, worship him who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Verses 10 and 11. And we all agree. God is worthy to receive glory because He is the Creator of all things. And it's in that setting that John was taken to, that throne room of grace. And then he sees the scroll in the right hand of the Ancient of Days, and that proclamation is made concerning that scroll. And no one was found worthy. And then he cries in the very presence of God. In the fullness of the triune nature of God. Those created beings, they are rightly praising God there. But when John sees that scroll, when that proclamation is made and no one steps forward, John cries. And he cried because he was in the throne room of grace. And that expanse that John described as being like a sea of glass, was still before the throne of God. And as we've seen that expanse, the one that John says is like a sea of glass, no matter how nice it looks, that's a huge problem. It's the same place that the same vision that the prophet Ezekiel saw and recounted to us in his book. And in verse 22 of chapter 1 of Ezekiel, he mentions that expanse there as well. And many English translations render that as like a sea of glass. And Ezekiel rightly understood what that expanse is. It is what we read about in chapter 13 of Revelation. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. And then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems. And on his head were blasphemous names. And as we see when we get to chapter 13 and we study it in depth, this is who we think that it is. It's our mortal enemy, the one who is the accuser of the brethren, the serpent, the dragon, the devil. 
And this is why that expanse that John sees before the throne of God in the throne room of grace is such a problem for him. Because he understands that the scroll that the Ancient of Day holds in his hands is the title deed that Adam sold to Satan for a piece of fruit. And he knows that as long as that scroll remains sealed, he's doomed. As is all humanity. We will all die. And we will all die in our sins. Separated from God. As long as that scroll is sealed. As long as that expanse is still there. We are still slaves to sin. And we are still in bondage to the master that we had sold ourselves to. And this is why John cried. And this is why the Lamb of God. The Lion from the tribe of Judah. Why him being worthy is of such importance. Because as long as that expanse is there, as long as that scroll remains sealed, John has no hope. And neither do we. And it doesn't matter that Jesus lived a perfect life and died sinless sinless in his life. If his death, if his blood is not accepted and worthy to be a propitiation for our sins, it doesn't matter. Because that he lived, that he died and is alive again, that only proves that he's God. Nothing more. And for this alone, he is worthy of all praise. And what is the praise that is rightly being given to him here? But it is what was accomplished on that day, the day that he shed his precious blood on that cruel wooden cross. It was accomplished on that day that matters. The command is made. Who is worthy? And no one steps forward. And John realizes in that moment, even though the Father is there, even though the Spirit is there, and even though the, the Son is there, no one stepping forward means I'm doomed. I remain separated from God. And he cries. And then one of the 24 elders comes over and tells him, stop crying. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, He has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals, Revelation 5.5. Think about this, because John has seen the risen Christ before. He had been witness to his resurrection. He had seen his ascension. He had seen him again in chapter 1, and he had seen us again in chapter 4. But he still cried when he saw the scroll when he was told that no one was worthy to open it. But now, now, whether he turned or whether he just looked, I don't know. But he sees the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David. He has overcome as to open the scroll and its seven seals. He sees his friend. He sees his brother. He sees his master. Finally, in all of his glory, Then I saw in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures in the midst of the elders a lamb 
standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He sees Jesus do that which no other being can ever do. Chapter 5, verse 7. And he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sits on the throne. Which then brings about what we are told happening in verse 8 of chapter 5. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders all fell down before the Lamb, each one having a harp and goals full of, or bowls, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Why do they fall down in adoration? And notice who it is that falls down. It's all of creation, the angelic beings and the 24 elders. And what we are told of verses 9 of 10 of chapter 5 is important in understanding and in making sense of our verses today. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take this scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and you purchased for God with your blood people, from every tribe and every tongue and people and nation. And you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Jesus can stop crying. I'm sorry, John can stop crying because Jesus is the Lamb of God. Purchased with the blood people. Think about that. Because this is what is meant why John was crying. John knew him. He knew that he was a sinner. He understood sin is not just a bad or wrong thought or action. He understood that he was dead in his sin, Ephesians 2.1, and that he had sold himself into bondage or slavery of sin, Romans 7.14. And he knew that the one that had dominion over the earth, the one who lived in that expanse that was like a sea, that he, that he is the master over all those who have sold themselves into slavery of sin, as told to us in Romans 6.20. Listen to Romans 6.20. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. I think, I think you actually missed that verse. Because we need, to be, we need to really truly grasp what Romans 6.20 says. Because this is why John cried when no one stepped forward to take the scroll. When no one, if, because if no one was found worthy, then John was free. And we are free as well. In regard to righteousness. If no one steps forward to take that scroll, we are eternally separated from the love of God. We remain an enemy of God, not part of his family, not an heir of righteousness. And we are doomed to spend the rest of eternity in slavery to sin, separated from the Lamb, from the Spirit, and from the Ancient of Days. And those that are under the altar in verse 9, they would never have been under that altar. And this is the truth of every human that has ever lived. And this is why what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary is what makes him worthy to take the scroll. Because he is the second Adam. That didn't fail, Adam failed. What test, you ask? 
Christ Jesus, who although existing in the form of God, think about this, who although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, 6 through 8. And what is the effect of the second Adam succeeding in esteeming his father of the greatest value? It's what's told to us in verses 9 through 11 of, of Philippians 2. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at, ev- at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven on earth and under earth, and that they will tongue will, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Remember what we read that happened in chapter 5 after he came forward to take the scroll and all of creation fell down and worshipped him? And this is why John could stop crying. That, extent, that expanse may still be there, but Christ has overcome And John rightly knew that he was safe in the arms of his Savior. And we really need to stop and think. Just as I admonished a minute ago, to stop and think of the truth of who we were prior to Christ. I need to admonish you to stop and think about the manner in which you're actually thinking. Because many of us within our culture, and even within this little body, all in the spell Dietrich Bonhoeffer coined as stupidity. Meaning that we have chosen to live in a fantasy, make-believe world of our own design instead of reality. You see it all around us. Now being told, you must believe that a man can be a woman just because so. And you must affirm that same-sex attraction is normal and even beautiful. And you must not judge. And you must never believe that there are anything like absolute truths. And within Western evangelicalism, it's not much better. In fact, I would actually say it's worse. I mean, the world is only doing that which this master tells it to do. But the church? The church? to be different. We're supposed to obey and submit to our master. But we think, and we have been taught that what we've been given in Christ, not much value there. Those saints who were found under the altar, they thought otherwise. And contrary to the truth, there are those that say that what we are told in our verses from today, that this is not the normal Christian life. And I say to you, tell that to the Christians that have lived for the last 7,000 years. Try to convince them that their salvation was not worth everything in their life. You tell the apostles and the first century disciples that God was not worthy for them to suffer and to die for. 
Tell that to that great cloud of witnesses, those in Hebrews 11 that we comfort ourselves with that are surrounding us now. Those that were tortured and did not accept their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and floggings, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. Do you see that it's not just martyrdom, but it's just how you live? They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not wandering in desolate places and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive that which was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Hebrews 11, verses 35 through 40. Oh, and by the way, that last little bit there, verse 40 of Hebrews 11, that speaks to the last verse today as well. And these saints under that altar are told, rest and wait for us. They all seem to think that their salvation had some value, some worth. And this then brings us to the meaning of the title of this sermon, Ms. Exaggerations and Uncomfortable Truths. Because we really have esteemed the value of our salvation of God as being very little in importance. We may esteem it enough to submit to coming to church on Sundays. Well, most Sundays. But the thinking that the salvation that we have been graciously granted, the right standing with God once again, that it has real value? Well... And that the value of your soul is not worth anything else. That is an absolute myth. Listen to what Christ said in Mark 8, chapter, chapter 8, verses 35 through 38. He said, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Verse 36. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What do you think being ashamed of Christ means? We are told within modern evangelicalism that those who have been redeemed by God by the one who is the Lamb of God, you can live as you choose. You can live just like the world. You can look just like the world. Just be a little bit better. And that's an exaggeration. We don't understand. We haven't been taught. We haven't been shown that the salvation that we have been given is of the most valuable thing that we will ever have. And that it's worth us suffering for the Word of God. As told to us in verse 9. And we don't think 
And we haven't been taught or shown that obedience to the word is the evidence of salvation in our lives, even though it's the very thing that is stated in the evidence of these saints in verse 9. And you never have to wonder if you would be one of those men that down that beach in those orange jumps to be beheaded or not. You never have to wonder whether or not you would be that man or not. Because it's the salvation and right that we have in God, because of God, it is worth us being obedient to the point of us losing our heads for it, as Martin Luther rightly said. But if you cannot, and if you do not esteem that salvation that you say has been so graciously granted and poured out on you in your everyday life, if you don't esteem that of the greatest value when times are easy, when times are soft, you will not esteem it of any value when it gets hard either. Don't fool yourself. These saints whose souls are seen safe under the altar in the ancient days. They lived in obedience to the word of God. What word? Well, do you recall that Philippians 2, 6 through 8 verses I read earlier about Christ and what he did, him succeeding in the second Adam? Well, here's the reason that Paul wrote those verses. Verses 1 through 5. The first part is a rhetorical question. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection or compassion, that's the rhetorical question part. Again, what have you received in Christ? Then he gives a list of things that your life should look like because of that. And then he sums it all up in verse 5. 2 through 4 is this. Fulfill my joy that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory, but with humility of mind regarding one another as more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. And here's verse 5, the summation of it all. He's saying, if there's any value in Christ, look at your life, if there's any value in Christ, here's the summation have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on to say what Christ did. What Paul is saying there is stop and ask yourself this. What exactly is it that you have gained in Christ? Have you gained anything by his sacrifice? Is it of any value at all? Because if, it, if you have and if it is, then have the same mind that he did. And our obedience to the word, our submission to him, it's us modeling our lives after his. It's us becoming more like our Savior and esteeming him above the things of this world and the ruler of this world. And we do this by willfully choosing to think, to act, and to obey. This is not end-time stuff. The advancement of the gospel has always been forged in the fire of obedience and sacrifice of the children of God. 
those that have seen with their own eyes, felt deep within their souls the great gift that is the salvation of God, and have willingly surrendered their lives in the glorious service of the one who has purchased them. This has always been the pattern for the advancement of the gospel. It's been said that the martyrs is the church. From A.D. 197, by the second century, they knew that it was people laying down their life for the gospel that advanced the gospel. And again, not every saint is called to martyrdom. We probably are not going to be here. But every saint is called to obedience and submission. And this then brings us to the why of these three verses. Why did these saints willingly suffer martyrdom and suffer the reality of living for the one that they say died for them? It's what they say in verse 10. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Master, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And you're thinking, that's not an answer. But what they're doing there is merely stating back to God which he has already told them. He said to them, if the world hates you, know that it it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of this world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than a master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours also. But all these things they do to you for my sake, my name's sake, because they don't know the way. John 15, 18 through 21. So the cry from under their altar against those that they call those that dwell on the earth. That's not a call to avenge their blood because they were wrongly treated. As much as it is a call to avenge the earth dwell which is how the sons of Satan are always referred to in the book of Revelation, all those that are outside of Christ, for the blasphemy against the one who by his blood had redeemed them. They rightly understood that the persecution, that being shunned by the earth dwellers because of their obedience to the Lord, that may have been directed at them, but they were merely being given the privilege of being made an ambassador for Christ in this realm. These earth dwellers, they saw Christ in those saints under that altar. And it was their obedience to him that reflected Christ to the earth dwellers. Let me just ask that as you go through your week, this this work week, ask yourself, how do the earth dwellers see you? Do they see Christ in you? Are you just one of their buddy buddies that hang out with them? around the water cooler and talk about things that you know are not God-glorifying. These saints, they all knew that the earth dwellers, they were worthy of the wrath of the Lamb because of the blasphemy of their lives. And this is why they cry out, how long? And again, this is not end time stuff. This has been the cry of the saints from the beginning of time. Listen to Psalm 6, verse 3. 
My soul is greatly dismayed, but you, O Yahweh, how long? How long, O God, will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy spur your name forever? Why do you turn back your hand, even your right hand, from within your bosom, destroy them? Psalm 74, verses 10 and 11. Same cry that Zechariah made in chapter 1, which was, by the way, what was the catalyst for the horsemen, four horsemen being sent out in that revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the same cry that the psalmist makes in Psalm 79. Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let it be known among the nations before our eyes. Vengeance for the blood of your slaves which has been poured out. And what is said of these saints confirms that this has been the normal life for all Christians since Adam. Verse 11, And a white robe was given to each of them, and it was told to them that they should rest for a little while longer until the, the, the number of their fellow slaves and their brothers who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Have you ever, guys ever thought about what's going to happen the day that you enter into glory? We're given a glimpse right here. This is what you should expect. You don't have to wonder what heaven is going to be like when you get there. If you get there, any Christ comes the second time. This is what it's going to be. And this will be your cry. And this is the security of the saints. They are safe in the arms of their Savior, under the altar of God, given a white robe and told, rest. And when these saints entered into glory, they didn't wonder where they were going to land. They didn't get into heaven and end up in a long line. I wonder which line this is. I wonder what book is going to be opened when I get to the front of the line. The moment they entered into glory, that which they had endeavored to make sure of in this life was made manifest in that one. And this is the warning of Revelation 6. And this is also the, the meaning of, Revel, or of Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have fallen short of it. For indeed, we have had good news proclaimed to us, just as they also, he's talking about the Old Testament people, but the word that was heard didn't profit those who were not united with faith among those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken somewhere in this way concerning the seventh day. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news proclaimed to them but failed to enter it, because, you guys know what the, why they failed to enter it? I'm going to fathom a guess. disobedience. He again determines a certain day. Today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, 
Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Saints, I care for you. And because of that, I desire that you be convinced of your salvation. That you know, you know who your Savior is. That you are saved not because you walked an aisle at some point. Not because you went through VBS and you raised your hand and filled out a card. Not because you're growing up in a Christian home. And certainly not because you're an American. Do you esteem that which you claim as yours? I can tell my wife all day long that I love her. But it's my actions that prove whether or not I do. If you esteem Christ of any value, then you will do what is told to us in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself, or do you not recognize about yourself that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? And the passing of that test, that's esteeming the salvation of Christ as being the most valuable thing in your life. And those under that altar, they all, all the way from righteous Abel, all the way to the last saint that will be saved, the second before the second coming of Christ, they all, we all, are expected to live in the same manner as they did. Obedience to the word of God and the one who saved us and who has made us free in his righteousness. And saints, as I said last week, Chapter 6 of Revelation is given for us in order that we can make sense of the world around us, of the evil that we see going on out there, and the evil that we see going on in here, and understand why things are the way that they are. And for this reason, we can see the true value of our salvation. Again, this is not end time stuff. Listen to the psalmist who wrote Psalm 116. He said, What shall I give to Yahweh in return for all his bountiful dealings with me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of Yahweh. I shall pay my vows to Yahweh. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. And this is what he knew, verse 15. Precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death of his holy ones. O Yahweh, surely I am your slave. I am your slave, the son of your maidservant. You have loosened my bonds. To you I shall offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And I will call upon the name of Yahweh. And I shall pay my vows to Yahweh. O may it be in the presence of his people. In the courts of the house of Yahweh, in the midst of Jerusalem, Praise God. What we are confronted with today in these three verses is the fate of all the redeemed of God from the beginning of time. Again, from Abel, Enoch, Abraham, David, all those within that cloud of witnesses in Hebrews. Every saint 
They were all like John. They all knew that if Jesus wasn't worthy, from righteousness, but because he is worthy, we are free from the bondage of sin, and we are now heirs of the righteousness that is Christ. And we will all, every one of us will all enter up or end up underneath the altar of God. Why? Because our lives, like our deaths, are precious in His sight. How do we know that? Because He's proven that by becoming the worthy Lamb of God that makes us free in His righteousness. Saints, esteem the salvation that you've been given in the Son of God. 